You're listening to the Fresh Takes on Tech podcast, a show from the International Fresh Produce Association. This is a show for people interested in the intersection between technology and the produce and floral industries. Every week, we explore the problems, solutions, people, and ideas that are shaping the industry. If you are interested in the innovations that create change, this is the place for you. Let's dive in. Hello, and welcome back to Fresh Takes on Tech. We're continuing our season on sustainability, and today we are going to talk to Bill Ortz about bioproducts and reducing plastics in the food supply chain. Bill is research leader at the USDA Agriculture Research Service in Albany, California. As research leader in the Bioproducts Research Unit, Bill leads a 41-member team, 13 PhDs, of chemists, molecular biologists, plant physiologists, biologists, and engineers working on a dizzying array of products and technologies. Hi, Bill, and welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Please tell us a little bit more about your work and the mandate that you have. So we have three mandates. The primary mandate is to add as much value to agricultural co-products as possible. And that has essentially three titles. One is zero waste initiative. So any biomass source that isn't utilized optimally, we try to add value to. Second one is our bioproducts initiative. Work with companies, and it's really close to the zero waste initiative, but in adding value, end up with co-products that people sell. So it's not just maybe optimizing what you would do with the almond hull, but turning it into a plastic or, or a composite or something. And then the third um, initiative we have is strategic crops. So crops that um, haven't necessarily taken off that we want to develop like a domestic rubber supply. Great. So one of the things that you've been heavily involved in, as you say, is developing prototypes for green packaging and sustainable materials. So let's start by understanding the role that plastic plays in the food supply chain. Can you explain why we use so much? We use a lot of plastic because plastic works. Um, I know that it, that's not necessarily intuitive, but it's a remarkable material developed over the last 75 years and you get clear films, you get solid trays, you use a minimal amount of material to get produce, get, get your stuff to market, and you get it there sterile, so clean and predictable. So we use a lot of plastic because it has a lot of uses, it's very versatile, and it's good material that essentially works. Um, it does leave an environmental footprint, but all things do. Hmm. So what are some of the negatives of using so much plastics in the chain? So it's just the, what's the environmental, the negative environmental footprint look like? Well, the first um, questionable impact is the source of plastics is from the petroleum fossil fuel industry. So that's generally the feedstock. Mm -hmm. And so it's not necessarily sustainable. It, you know, we produce oil and oil, a lot of that goes into plastics. Um, the second one is the end of life. What are you doing with the plastic after it's done? So for many times we use sing, uh, plastics for single use. You might have a you know, two hour relationship with this plastic. I mean, for a cup, it could be a 20 minute relationship mm -hmm. and then it's gonna go to a landfill and may never degrade. And when it does degrade, it degrades slowly and it degrades into methane and greenhouse gases. 
And has this become worse during COVID? Uh, there's a lot more uh, takeout, food delivery items, single-use items. So it hasn't necessarily gotten better during COVID. And then, um, yeah, I mean, people are shopping for individual portions. So just, I don't know if it's COVID, but more generically, we buy uh, smaller items um, and single packaging. And so often you have a lot more packaging relative to the amount of food you bought. Mm-hmm. So there's a number of ways to attack using less plastics in the food chain. You've, your work over the decades has had a huge impact. Let's talk about some of the areas you've worked in and some specific examples of that. So really early on, we didn't necessarily want to make the decision whether you should go for biodegradable plastics when they're single use or really focus on recycling. And we've done both. So, you know, I know it's not necessarily the role of USDA to, pers- to help companies recycle plastics, but we've gotten heavily involved in what's the best use of recycled plastics. So that's what we do with one third, you know, part of our initiative. The part that's a little more noticeable is the, comp- the companies we've worked with to make degradable plastics and composites. So these are, um, the source of the carbons for the plastic are from the ag industry usually. So things like polylactic acid you get from Cargill Dow, um, NatureWorks, whatever the companies were, now it's called NGO. So you take um, sugars, convert it to lactic acid, make polylactic acid, so it's a, st- a sustainable source of a plastic, and then you make it into a material we can use as packaging or as a cup or single-use item. Those plastics are by definition degradable as well. So you have plastics that are sustainable. So there's different words here, sustainable source, and then degradable, and then compostable. Um, Not necessarily one and the same. You can have synthetic plastics from petroleum feedstocks that aren't necessarily as sustainable upfront, but they can be biodegradable, compostable uh, at the end of life. So we've worked on all areas with different companies. And so, you know, the devil's in the details on this one. We find that single-use items are best if you know their end of life. So a lot of times they're best at a restaurant or a shop where you know what you're going to do with the material at the end of its life. So a good example is at a cafeteria. If everything in that cafeteria is compostable and, and you get it into a compost bin, you have a really good um, idea of what's gonna happen at the end of life. So on the compostable, what do you do do with that? I mean, I'm I'm always confused just in my own house. And so that goes into my compost bin and then that will break down and compost. Is that, that's what happens with that? So if it's a kind of a clamshell or a plate and you know it's compostable and it's been well labeled, there's less confusion. The confusion arises when a plastic fork or knife or even a clear cup is not well labeled and you don't know what to do with that. So should that go in the recycle bin or should it go in the compost bin? Mm -hmm. And if you've been well educated, you read the bottom and you say, okay, if this is made of PLA, it goes into the compost bin. But it is a source of confusion. So it's not, you've asked the the underbelly of a question, the, the nasty question in all this. How do we educate consumers to know when they have a compostable and when they don't? Mm-hmm. And is there an answer to that? 
how we do labeling. <laughs> so again, the answer is like on things like clamshells or even certain trays, and you know, you know, they're sometimes a little earthier looking or browner, and you have big label on the bottom. This is compostable. People are getting used to it. Uh -huh. Again, um, if you're at a cafeteria where everything in you know everything going in and going out is compostable, we get used to it. But you know, if if a fork is not labeled really big and big letters compostable on somewhere on it, what do you do with it? You don't necessarily know. And then what does it break down to? I mean, the actual like composition, chemical composition, like yeah. does it just disappear or what's left of it? All right, so. So to call it compostable, it has to meet an ASTM standard. And we've been involved in developing those standards. Like one is called ASTM D6400 was one of the first ones. What is a degradable compostable plastic? What is its definition? And it has to break down at a certain time, in, at a certain temperature to basically um, CO2, CO, you know, just basic carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, hydrogens, basic materials. So it can't leave behind any remnants of the original polymer. Hmm. Okay. And then degradable, explain that and how that's different. Yeah, so, well, so as compostable is a tighter definition if you have a compostable standard and you go to an industrial compost facility. Degradable starts to use words like home degradable when ASTM is trying to put a standard on that, but but then consumers want to just put it out in their backyard compost bin and hope it degrades. Mm. And so degradable has fuzzier definitions sometimes than biodegradable, right? It, it means something to different people. So one of, one of the standards we, you know, we kind of cringe at is home compostable because everybody's home is different. Mm. Compostable, industrial compostable, okay, we say, okay, there's a standard, there's a standard temperature. So... Degradable um, is in the eyes of the beholder sometimes, but so compostable, degradable. We like to think of ASTM standards, what is biodegradable at a certain temperature going to break down the elements we can predict, you know, small molecules. And then recyclable, let's talk a little bit about that. So what is, um, what work have you done there and what are the different ways that people are recycling these types of materials? Yeah, so for the past 20 years, um, we've been working with uh, landfills and trying to find ways. So we don't recycle as well as we think we do. You know, it's really only 25 to 40% recycling of plastics. It, it can be done um, in larger places like arenas and cafeterias. You can get it all or get, it, get none. But we've been working with landfills to where we try to um, help them screen out bottles and cans um, and plastics that didn't make it into your blue bin. All right, so we worked with several, you know, Recology in San Francisco um, and Salinas Valley Solid Waste Management Board and work with them to screen out any plastic that didn't get caught in your, red, in your blue bin. And then the second thing is about four or five years ago, we used to be able to send all our plastics from those recycled bins to Asia, and most of the Asian markets stopped taking our recycled plastics. So we've been working, we have a pretty significant grant with CalRecycle to find new uses for that recycled plastic that used to go to Asia, but we want to use in this country. So you can imagine it's, you know, every different color, clear and green, and all these different, you know, plastic bottles that you see, 
um, lids of bottles. They can be blue, milk, milk carton reds. We put them together and we try to um, put out plastics that have as close to the original properties of the plastics as possible. So we got a, a pretty significant grant with CalRecycle, that's California's um, waste management board, if you will, um, to optimize the, the reuse of plastics. Take that recycled plastic that you get, and, and so they have these material recycling facilities, you pull out these plastic bottles and cans, um, plastic bottles and, and wraps, and you put them together and you blend them into a plastic that could be used, say, for lumber or reused in carpeting textiles and such. Mm -hmm. um, I'll add one more thing. We're part of the Zero Waste Initiative. We have, mostly you've, you've got to get it to a uniform color, right? Mm -hmm. One way to get it to uniform color is to add carbon black. Carbon black is the black, you know, little powder that makes your, your tires um, black. Well, we've discovered that one of the best sources of natural carbon black is to take things like almond shells, and walnut shells, make charcoal out of it, grind it up, and use that as a substitute for carbon black. Mm. And the advantage of that is it didn't just show up as an inert filler, it added heat stability to that recycled plastic. So you take recycled plastic that could be a really weird color, probably blobby gray, you add carbon black, which is basically charcoal you've made from almond shells, grind it up, add it as a carbon black substitute, and you end up with a plastic that is more stable than when you started. And so as you recycle plastic, you don't really recycle, you usually downcycle. It doesn't maintain the same molecular weight, it doesn't maintain the same heat stability. And so in downcycling, you have to add more to make it more heat stable. If you can increase the heat stability, you can use more recycle in your mix or, right, or make your pieces thinner. So mm -hmm. it's things that we've been working on for the past 15 years, adding heat stability to recycled plastic, adding heat stability to sustainable plastics as well. The biodegradables need to have an array of, of properties. So what new technology or what new breakthroughs need to happen to make that work better or to um, just in kind of the technical side of it? Okay. It's always about price point. Um, the you're working with the petroleum industry and the development of plastics is a very mature industry. You know, trillions of dollars have been spent on the supply chain with petroleum, and they're very good at making plastics very efficiently at large scale. Mm -hmm. And then we try to compete when our biomass sources aren't necessarily at the same scale as the petroleum market. And so our technologies have trouble matching the price point of polypropylene that came in maybe from wherever, the Middle East or whatever, polypropylene at 65 cents a pound, and you're trying to do it from a, you know, a seasonal supply of a crop or, or from sugar even, which goes up and down with food supply demands, right? So, you know, some of these sustainable plastics we talk about are fermented from sugars. Mm -hmm. And, or you're going to use a cellulosic um, biomass source that is seasonal and is not necessarily coming in at the scale that the petroleum industry deals with. Mm. And so they have a 75, you know, petroleum industry on making plastic, they make good products. They have a 75 year head start and they have the advantage of scale and consistency over the last 75 years. So we try to match their price points um, 
with products that don't have the supply chain set up at that level. That's the biggest, I think the biggest, because we can match their properties in general, but we don't necessarily match the properties at the same price point yet. Hmm. And some, so you were talking about working on some alternative crops. Are, are those crops that you would use as feedstock and, and how's that work going? Yeah, so one crop that we're kind of proud of is making a domestic rubber supply using a crop called Waiuli. It's mm. a desert mm -hmm. shrub. And instead of uh, you know tapping a rubber tree in the tropics, which is very labor intensive, and, and then the rubber comes you know, 20 and 30,000 miles to our port, we would grow a desert shrub. And um, instead of tapping, it's you know got a certain percent of rubber, five to 7%, say, and you would grind up the, the shrub, get your rubber supply, and then regrow that bush. So it's, it's so it can be highly mechanized. It's kind of like mowing the grass and getting a rubber supply. We work with the big tire companies and you can now buy a uh, Cooper tire. You can buy a domestically produced tire made from Waiuli. So it's past the standard. Cool. It's out there. So is um, it price of, of effective? I mean, can you no. do it now? Okay. <laughs> Today, no, right? I mean, is it very small farms, you know, but it is a desert shrub. But you're going to change the labor paradigm and uh -huh. you're going to have a domestic source of rubber. And you can't make a jet tire without natural rubber. We know how to make a synthetic rubber, but it's not exactly the same. It doesn't cross-link the same. There's something about it. Um, and so we're trying to help. Now, when you produce that rubber, remember I just said it's about 5 to 7% maybe rubber in there. What do you do with the other 90x percent? And what you do with it is you can make fibers from it or you can ferment it into things like biofuels or, or plastics. In thinking about um, the produce industry, um, again, and some of the plastic use there, I know you've done some interesting work on um, just using, helping with food waste, you know, reducing food waste, um, the work you did with apple slices. And then I know you've also looked at some edible films. And so what are some other things that we can do to just use less plastic and reduce food waste in the, in this food chain? So recently we have noticed that there's a regulation in Europe. So, so let me mention, um, price or produce lookup stickers, depending on where you look, they're either called PLUs, price lookup stickers, are those ubiquitous little stickers that you see mm -hmm. on produce, you know, as you, as you walk through your produce aisle, they save a lot of plastic. Yeah. Um, it, because otherwise your, your apples would be individually wrapped or, you know, wrapped in small packages. You would use some kind of probably plastic tray or cardboard tray with some clear plastic over the top. But, if by using those little stickers, you have the freedom to pick your own apple, pick your own produce, and it really saves times at checkout. So each one has a sticker and then the, the cashier can quickly ring it up um, and you know you can control your inventory. So those little stickers save a lot of plastic. Um, there's a rule that um, the French government has basically said that by the end of the year, all of those PLU stickers have to be home compostable. Hmm. So it's that um, home degradable, home compostable idea. So it has to meet a standard for breaking down. So we see as a challenge, I mean, working with the leaders of the industry to address that question. We need to be able to make a sticker 
with our partners. I mean, we, we, we provide ideas and some technology. Actually, we live vicariously through industry partners that actually make it happen. Um, but we're working with the leaders. You know, the leader in the PLU market is uh, Sinclair, is, is one leader that we're working with. They um, provide the PLU stickers that is um, widely seen. We're trying to get a sticker that is home compostable with a food safe adhesive that would also compost and meet the European standards. That's a so, big charge. It's a big charge. It's a fun challenge. Um, again, we think and know we can do it. It's about price points. We're used to um, plastic sheets that are fairly inexpensive to produce and um, have been optimized for the, for the past 40 years. So they take on ink. Now remember, you have to be able to print on these really well and you don't want the ink to run and you don't want the adhesive to come off in a freezer and things like that, you know, hot and cold cycles. But it's, it's challenging, it's fun, it you know, keeps me coming to work every day. Driscoll's is the global market leader of fresh strawberries, blueberries, raspberries, and blackberries. With more than a hundred years of farming heritage, Driscoll's is a pioneer of berry flavor innovation and the trusted consumer brand of only the finest berries. So you have adhesive, uh, the, plat the material itself, and ink, and all three of those have to be home compostable. So home what, compostable food safe. So what but material they save is a lot using? of plastic, right? Yeah. It's, it's, I know there are, you know, some people treat them like, you know, they're those little ubiquitous things and they can be irritating to some. They save a lot of supply chain issues and a lot of plastic wrap. Mm -hmm. So where are you in the process of finding something that works there? We are, well, again, working with Sinclair and other um, industry leaders, we are testing. We, we have the equipment. So for the past 20 years, we helped establish some of the ASTM standards for degradables. So we work with other companies in plastics. Uh, there was a big wave about five years ago, not only to be compostable, but to be ocean safe and ocean compostable. Mm -hmm. So we work with um, companies to make sure their ingredients, when they land in the waste in the water system, are water compostable. So now that sounds almost trivial, but it's not. So when you send to a, a compost facilities, there's a lot of microbes available, nitrogen sources. When you get to the ocean, you might not have the same nitrogen and, and mineral composition that you'd have in the soil. So plastic that composts at a compost facility or landfill, a plastic might not break down in the ocean. So where we on it, we're testing um, materials um, on those PLU stickers that are home compostable and food safe and eventually going to be ocean compostable fully degradable and meet the standard that the European market is asking for. Do you think the U.S. is going to follow with that requirement? Well, I'll back up a little. I think um, often in the EU, one country is like the canary in the coal mine and they see, yeah. you know, they'll come up with a legislation and they see if others, if it makes sense in one country, sometimes it's an EU standard. Now that would affect a lot of export markets for the US. So we'll start there. So even though it starts with France and maybe a limited number of produce items, France may be a warning to get ahead of this thing and it might be EU-wide within five years. Um, the US tends to be a little 
more reluctant to put in federal reg regulations on these things to mandate it as quickly. So I don't think it's an immediate concern in the US, but if it's successful, it could be a concern soon enough. But if we're exporting, say we're exporting apples, um, then we'd have to meet that mandate, wouldn't we? Exporting from the US we'd, to France? We'd have to meet the mandate to export. And then once you do something like that, it's a lot easier to do it to your entire um, exactly. supply. Yeah. yeah. So that might actually so, be market-driven instead of mandate-driven in the US. Right. Yeah. And our understanding of working with Sinclair, the technology exists to do it, it's price points and tolerance to price points, and, and then just meeting all the tight specs that we've come to expect from the excellence that we've had from old plastic products. I mean, those, the existing technology works. You can print on it, you know, you can find adhesives. So we kind of get used to a standard. If you notice, we talked about compostable like plates and clamshells. Sometimes the companies purposely make them look rougher so that you know they're compostable. Hmm. I mean, it is market driven, but if it's too slick, if it looks too much like polystyrene, like styrene, a styrene tray, then you'll, you'll put it in with the styrene trays. So you purposely make it a little coarser or different looking so you know to put it in your compost bin. That makes sense. So switching a little bit to your lab and kind of how you're structured, as you were talking about with Sinclair, I mean, you've done a ton of partnerships and you've helped a lot of companies and often expanded on your uh, mandate. So tell us how you work with industry and kind of how, you know, I'm curious in a lot of the work that you do, do you patent it? And then is there like a license or do you just do this for the good of, of the world and, and give your technology away? Or like, how, how does that all work? How do you get engaged uh, with industry? Right. All of the above. So I can give you, I'll brag about the best example we've ever had and then act like it happens every day. Um, <laughs> Gatorade, <so>, right? <laughs> right. Something like that. So, so the apple dippers at McDonald's, all right. <laughs> which is a partnership we had with Montrose Heuser. Um, Dominic Wong in our group is an enzymologist. And back about 20 years ago, he was working on oxidation reactions. And he just knew as a sidebar that if he could stop those reactions, he could probably stop apples from turning brown, right? And he, and he like, okay, it's a pH trick. So he was, um, and it was basically a mixture of vitamin C and chalk dust, ascorbic acid and calcium chelators so certain healthy minerals, and what he discovered was you could, in the lab, at the glassware level, you could just mix the two together, dip your apples in there, and they won't turn brown for 30 days or so, sometimes 40. Okay, really good news. We were about to patent that ourselves, and we went out and, and started to talk at you know food technology conferences. And so we got... Montrose Heuser, uh, a food additive company, they sent their people to our pilot plant for most of the summer. And then, so they, they put in certain resources, they also put in people and time. And so it was a really um, relationship where we worked in a trust with each other. And then we co-wrote the patent with them and they um, have exclusive use to it for the last 20 years and then European rights mm -hmm. and pay us some licensing royalties back to us to the USDA. Our scientists don't necessarily benefit directly, but the USDA does. Win-win-win situation. Montrose Heuser is able to sell an additive that allows McDonald's and Subway to sell 
tens of millions of pounds of apples. They're in Happy Meals instead of French fries sometimes. They've made the school lunch program. Um, USDA gets some royalties back, right? All right, so we have healthier kids. Mm -hmm. And Montreux Soyser, again, has benefited. So that's when it works well. Other ways is companies come to us with issues and problems and questions. You know, Clorox came to us and said, we're interested in making the first compostable wipe. What do we do? And we said, okay, well, we have machines that can test it. We have small extruders. We can put out films and we can, you know, test the ASTM standards. You guys know the market, but we have some of the tools. And, and the other thing is we have the patience to do research for multiple quarters. So what they did is paid me, paid us to hire a postdoc and work on some of their pet issues for the next, you know, so many years. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So a lot of different ways um, you come to see us. I mean, <laughs> I like to say that if somebody, I like, try to tell our team, if somebody from the ag community comes and asks you a question about something that's bothering them, the answer is, we do that research. What is it? In some ways, like, um, how can we help you? If it's important to you, it should be or could be important to us. So let us know more. So are most of your projects outside funded? And how do you sit down, you know, every year or every two years and have a big strategic plan and figure out what projects you're going to work on? Or like, how does, how do you decide which directions to go? So we are mostly base funded. We're on a congressional mandate. And so we sit down for a really big soul searching every five years. And, um, and then we write a big proposal of what we're going to do with the next five years. And then it goes through peer review, kind of, you know, National Science Foundation level, really high-ended, you know, send to a lot of other PhD level scientists to make sure it makes sense and they can grade it. And then, you know, we edit it and fix it. And that gives us a five-year cycle. So this zero waste initiative, the bioproducts initiative, and the strategic crops about two years ago went through this, you know, thought process and got approved. And that basically funds 80% of our work. And then we usually encourage folks to get about 20% soft funding through grants and partnerships with companies. That makes sense. Yeah. So we do a yearly um, soul searching, but then we have the five-year cycle, which gives us five-year mandate. And I know through other conversations we've had, um, you've touched an awful lot of the startup companies, um, especially the ones here in the Bay Area. And so how do you work with startups and how has that kind of happened that you do some yeah. incubation work? So anybody can approach us and say they'd like to work with us. Some of the companies that approach us happen to be in the same mission area that we have for a five-year cycle. You know, we're mandated to be in this area. Now, rather than reinvent the wheel, we ask them if they want to partner. And we start to share resources. So some of those companies recognize that since we're already base funded, um, sharing resources can turn out to be a pretty good idea. So. Yeah, I can name names. One of the companies we're proud to work with is Mango Materials, mm -hmm. which basically takes greenhouse gases and makes biodegradable plastics out of it. Exactly in our wheelhouse. So we'll um, do what we can to help them, including, you know, so they pay a little in, but then we help and we leverage our resources. So they end up um, pretty well moving in and having folks in our building using our equipment leveraging the space that we already have to do this mission. And we both benefit. 
So you multiply that out by any, usually we have six to eight companies as partners with our group at any given time. And sometimes it's small companies and sometimes it's much bigger companies. That's very cool. Yeah, it's such a, with a lot of startups, you see people just building the same capabilities over and over and over, and it, it just doesn't make sense. And so if there's yeah. some way to kind of leverage knowledge and capabilities and stemware, you know, it just makes sense to do that. Yeah, I mean, when, when Mango was writing some of their early, now Mango is a standalone now, but early on, they could argue that they had access to multiple, you know, 60 liter fermenters because they had access to our building and we had multiple 60 liter fermenters. Each one of those fermenters could be nearly $100,000 to buy. So they didn't necessarily have $600,000 in fermenters, but they had access to that number of fermenters, right? Mm -hmm. And um, they got in, so it was a good leverage. Yeah, you know, cool. So last question, uh, kind of a summary question for you. Um, what are three ways that the produce industry can be more sustainable around the use of plastics and decreasing food waste? Wow. Yeah, that's a, um, so I'll go back to the, the PLU stickers work, right? So make sure we maintain those. Mm -hmm. um, if we have, if we can't meet the mandate, say of the French government and others, and, the, and then you end up, um, you know, individually wrapping fruits, that would be crazy. So I like, I like that model. Let's start there. Um, the closer we can get to the source of supply um, in the supply chain, even in the packaging, the better we are, right? So, um, you know, the old adage, we used to be asked, do we want paper or plastic? And, and people would automatically think that maybe paper is going to be more sustainable. And that was like, to anyone who knows the system a little bit, that's a really nasty question. Which is more sustainable? How, and the answer is like, how close are you to your plastic supply? How, how far did your paper have to come? You know, did they use a lot of water in making paper? Did they use a lot of water in making plastics? And so um, part of the supply chain that we appreciate is getting closer to your sources. Cut down on carbon miles for anything. So don't drive things as, as far and get more locally sourced uh, sources of plastics and packaging material, right? Just get it closer, get it closer to the point sources. It's interesting, companies like Walmart had mandates where they cut back on the number of boxes used. Kind of, that was good news, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes it was a mix though of a, um, of a tray with a shrink wrap plastic over the top, say of, you know, I don't know, bottles of bleach. Those plastics though, instead of having to be, you know, from the petroleum industry, could be something from a sustainable source. And then you either, you compost it or recycle it right there. All right, so um, I don't know if that answered your question fully, but it, it's, it's a complex issue. We have more work, I've dedicated my whole career to trying to reduce and reuse plastics, optimize um, their carbons. And then the final thing is end of life. Really think about what you're going to do with the plastic after you've used it, especially, so if you can make packages that are compostable, educate the consumers what to do with the end, at the end of life and tell them, does it go in the blue bin or does it go in your, you know, your compost bin? And if it goes to the compost bin, you know, what are, what are the details, what are the tells on that and where does it go? So education and locally sourced is what we're pushing for. Great. Yeah, I think it's it's like you said in the beginning that 
the reason we use so much plastic is because it works so well. And so when you have things like really wanting to cut down on on food loss and food waste, that's a really competing, you know, well, if you if you wrapped everything in plastic, then you'd have less food waste. Well, we don't want that. So we have all these competing, you know, things that we're trying to do. And uh, I think looking for different ways to you know, different things, containers and things to put food in because, we, you know, we have to do that. It makes a lot of sense. And, and bioproducts are a great way to go. Well, thank you so much for your time and this insight. And I look forward to coming up and seeing your lab. I can't believe I've never been there given how long I've been in the Bay Area, <laughs> but I will work on that. And uh, thanks again, Bill. Welcome anytime. Thank you. The International Fresh Produce Association is bringing new technology to solve industry's big challenges through the new Fresh Field Catalyst Accelerator. The six-month immersive program works with technology companies outside of produce and floral to experience the challenges in our industry and develop innovative solutions for a healthier world. Applications are due April 4th. Find out more at freshproduce.com. You've been listening to Fresh Takes on Tech, a podcast from the International Fresh Produce Association. Keep connected with us by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you like what you've heard, please rate the show. That helps us keep delivering the latest on produce technology. Thank you for listening. Until next time.